This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. just one verse, verse 28. Luke 21, 28. Now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. They say that talk is cheap. Saying it and doing it is entirely different. Vowing and paying our vows is quite Another thing, making a promise and keeping a promise can be a very costly experience that we've all found out at one time or other. Last Sunday evening, I spoke on the most terrible words that Jesus ever uttered. Tonight, I want to preach on the most costly words that Jesus ever uttered. You see, when the Son of God spoke a word, he could not and would not Break his word. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. The Old Testament God says, I will stand over my word to perform it. So no matter what the cost, no matter how high the price, no matter how great the loss, no matter how much the sacrifice, the Lord will keep his word. Tonight, I want to submit to you what I believe are the three most costly words that Jesus ever uttered. And we are so accustomed to hearing them that oftentimes it takes the sense of just how much these words cost Jesus because we hear them so often. They cost him the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. Remember in John 17, his great prayer for the church, and one of the things that he desired greatly was that we see him in that glory, he said, that I had with the Father before the world began. And so in a sense, he lost all of that. He lost his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence. He could only be one place at one time. Now, he never lost it completely in that sense, otherwise he would have ceased to be God. But according to Paul in Philippians 2, he laid that aside, at least temporarily on earth. Uh, So there was great cost involved in everything he did. Consider for a moment the limitations he had simply as a man. From boyhood to manhood, he worked in the carpenter's shop. And he planed those planks and he sawed that wood and he hammered those nails. And no doubt he had cuts and bruises and his hands would be calloused. At the end of the evening, I'm sure he was tired. There was times we even saw him in a ship. He was just bone weary and tired where he fell asleep in the midst of a storm. Hadn't been his disciples waking him. He never he wouldn't have woken up. He was just so tired. He walked so much. A couple of weeks ago, we were driving through the Jordan Valley, and you looked over and you saw the Judean Hills. And it just reminded you 
how super fit Jesus must have been because he walked such distances in that land, in the heat and in the sun and the rough terrain. So he must have been really, really fit. He felt the pangs of hunger, particularly those 40 days and 40 nights when he fasted in the wilderness. And uh, for anybody that's ever done a long fast, at least for the first couple of weeks, you most certainly have hunger pangs. And, uh, and then they go away. And then when the fast is over, as it said about Jesus, and afterwards he hungered, really, really hungered. So he, he knew all of those things as a, as a human being. And then you think of the suffering he went through at his trials, and he was beaten, he was slapped, his beard was plucked, he was spat upon. And then on the cross, the, the suffering of the cross, which was absolutely horrendous, uh, the worst death that any human being could ever face was crucifixion. It was cruel beyond words. So this is why I believe that these three words are so precious, they're so meaningful. I think for you and me tonight, they are marvelous words. They cost the Lord Jesus Christ everything. Everything. Your redemption draws near, he said. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 and 30, Christ is made unto us redemption. Ephesians 1 and 7, Colossians 1 and 14, we have redemption through his blood. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Peter says, for as much as we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from the vain tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. So these words, uh, redemption and redeemed and redeemer and ransomed, they're quite similar if I could simplify that for you without getting technical, redemption is basically the paying of a price, and ransom is the price that is paid. Jesus came to this earth to pay a price for us, and yet he himself was the price that was paid. And so when Jesus uses a word like redemption, he knew fully well what he meant. He knew what the cost was going to be. In 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, Paul says, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Now in the Old Testament, the word redeemed and ransomed, slaves, possessions, Land could all be redeemed. A price could be paid for a slave to go free, for a possession to go back into ownership, for land to be returned. And there's that beautiful, beautiful story in the book of Ruth that so speaks of Christ that we must mention. You remember how Naomi and her husband Elimelech, their two sons, Malon and Kilion, they lived in Bethlehem, and they were quite content there. That was their home. But then there came a famine, and there was no bread in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. There was no bread in the house of bread. 
And so Elimelech decided, as the head of the home, that they would move to Moab. And they moved to Moab. And while they were in Moab, for whatever period of time they were there, some things happened. First of all, her two sons married two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. So Malon and Killian married Ruth and Orpah. And then after a period of time, Elimelech died, her husband. And then after a further period of time, both Malon and Killian, excuse me, died also in the land of Moab. And then at some point, she heard that there was bread back again in the house of bread. And so she decided to go back home. And quite naturally, she understood that these two daughters-in-law, they were Moabites. They were not people of the covenant. They didn't belong to Abrahamic covenant. And so there wouldn't be much there for them. They would be strangers in the land. And so she tried to persuade them to stay and to, to marry husbands of the Moabites. And uh, we know that Orpah, she kissed her mother-in-law and she left her and went back to her, her friends and her family and whatever else she did after that. But we also know that Ruth clave unto her mother-in-law and would not leave her and gave that beautiful speech about where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God, and so forth. Beautiful, beautiful statement she made. And so the two of them went back, but they were stony broke. They had nothing. And before they had left, we're not exactly sure exactly what happened, but something in the order of either a Limelech mortgaged the land he had or sold it, but they no longer had it in their possession. And that land, would have, when Elimelech died, would have fallen to Malon, uh, who was Ruth's husband. And so they went back, and as I said, they were stony broke, and, and uh, Ruth being a stranger in the land, uh, we mentioned very briefly this morning that God was very much a helper of the poor and the needy and the stranger in the land. So if somebody was coming through the land, God made provision in his word in Leviticus that whenever the reapers would go through a field, whatever would be left, whatever would fall, they were not to pick it up because that was for the poor and the needy and the stranger in the land. So Ruth, then obviously Naomi had well filled her in in the, the laws of the land. So she went out, found the field of Boaz and began to glean in that field. Boaz spotted her. He fell in love immediately. He was smitten right away and made inquiries. Who's damsel is this? Whose young woman is this? He was a much older man. And he says, well, that, that's, that's, that's Ruth that came back with Naomi from the land of Moab. She's a Moabite. Uh, and told her about the wonderful woman that she was and how uh, precious she was to Naomi and how much she loved Naomi and so forth. And of course, that, all, <laughs> that caused him to fall in love all the more. And so she began then, talked over with Naomi, began to glean in that field of Boaz. And Boaz was very, very, very good to her. And to cut a long story short, then Naomi did a little bit of matchmaking. And uh, to cut a long story short, there came the point where Boaz uh, wanted to marry this beautiful Ruth, this Moabite. And uh, the only problem was, it's not just as easy as that because he also wanted, because he was a relative of Elimelech, no, his husband, he also wanted to get that land out of that mortgage situation or somebody, but he wanted to get that back into their hands, particularly Naomi, so that she could have it in her family. It would be still there. And if he did marry uh, Ruth and raised up children from Ruth, then that name would still be in that land. The, the land and the name would still be connected. 
Th those were the Jewish laws, and, and that's what they wanted. Now, the only problem was uh, you had to be a near relative. And the problem was he was a near relative, but there was a near relative. So that meant the near relative had first dibs on this. He got, he got first shout. And so Boaz got the men of the gate of the city, got the elders of the city to sit around. And here comes this near relative. And he said, do you want to buy this land of Elimelech? And he says, yes, I do. And he says, well, that's okay. You're entitled to do that. But, but because Ruth was married to Elimelech's son, you have to marry her too. And whenever the near relative heard that, he wasn't too happy about it because he says, well, that's going to that's gonna hurt my inheritance. You know, because if I get married to her and we have a son, then that son will, will eat into my inheritance also. So no, no thank you. Thanks for the offer, but no thanks. Just what Boaz wanted to hear because he really wanted to marry her. And so he did that. Now, here's what you must understand. The near relative, he was going to redeem the land and redeem the person, had to be a near relative. That's the first thing. They had to belong. Secondly, they had to be able to pay the price. And thirdly, they had to be willing to pay the price. So those three things had to happen before the exchange took place. And the beautiful imagery of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to redeem us, coming to pay the ransom for us, first of all, had to be a near relative. He took on flesh and blood just like us. He became one of us, part of the family of man. You know, his favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. The Son of Man. He loved that title, the Son of Man. He so identified with us as an irrelative. Secondly, he had to be able to pay the price. And the price for redeeming us was so great that only he could pay the price. Amen. No one else could pay the price to save us, to redeem us. And it wasn't silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the lamb that was slain Hallelujah. without spot or blemish. Thirdly, he had to be willing. He had to be willing. Not my will, but thine be done. We know he was able, and we know for sure he was willing. And so Boaz, being a near relative, was able to pay the price, was willing to pay it, took Ruth, got the land, but took Ruth to be his wife. And you know the rest of the story, how they had a child, Obed, and then Obed had a child called Jesse, and Jesse had a child called David. <coughs> and David, his greater son, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So this Moabitish woman became in the very lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ because Boaz was willing to take her on, even though she wasn't of the covenant, and even though it was going to cost him money to do it. But if it had to cost him everything he had, he still would have done it because he loved her so much. 
It cost Jesus everything he had to redeem us from sin and the curse of the law. Amen? Now in the New Testament, Paul gives us another image regarding redemption and a payment being made. And the image in his day, when he saw, and he saw this regularly, was the slave market. Lots of slave markets. Every town had them, particularly big cities. And no doubt he stood at many a slave market and watched the proceedings. This is what he says in Romans 7, 14. We are carnal, sold under sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 20. For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 7, 23. You're bought with a price. Be not slaves of men. The New Testament uses three words to describe this word redemption. The first is agorazo. Agorazo. The modern word for marketplace in Greece today is angora. Or agora. It's the market. And that word we find here, it means to buy in the marketplace. And then acts agorazo, to buy out of the marketplace. The idea was to go and buy a slave in the marketplace, but to take them out of the marketplace. For then the other word that's used here is lutroo, L-U-T-R-O-O. And it means to set free, to release, to liberate. And so Paul's using the image of a slave market, and we were sold under sin. But Christ came to set us free from the marketplace. He came to buy us and to redeem us, to release us, to free us, so that we're no longer in bondage to sin or Satan in this life, that we're free, we're prisoners set free. That was a great teaching of the Apostle Paul, and that's the illustrations he saw with his own eyes. I'm sure no doubt he saw somebody buying a slave not to make them a slave, not to be their slave, but to simply set them free from slavery. And when he saw that, he thought of this. And so, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, to be set free, Christ is our kinsman, redeemer. That was the Old Testament term in Ruth, kinsman, redeemer. In the New Testament, he's the one who comes and redeems us and buys us and sets us free from the slavery of sin and Satan. Second word is salvation. For the Son of Man, Luke 19 and 10, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. It cost him everything to save us. To save us, he could not save himself. He could not spare himself in order to save us. Remember the thieves on the cross in Luke 23? One of the two thieves who were hanged railed against him, saying, if you be the Christ, save yourself and us. Impossible. 
couldn't do it. A savior doesn't save himself. He gives himself. And he gave himself fully and completely. Knowing that night at the Passover, when he sat there and Judas went out into the night, knowing that within hours he would be arrested, falsely tried, brutally beaten, horrifically crucified, knowing all of that was ahead of him, he knew this was going to be the cost to save you and to save me. No wonder these words are precious to us. You know, in modern day evangelicalism, sometimes they use the word saved is not very popular today. I thank God it's a good Bible word. It's a word that Jesus used. And it means a lot, doesn't it? To be saved. Salvation. The two words for it is where we get our English salvation and save. Soteria and Zoso. In the Old Testament, earlier books that meant to be saved from physical danger and peril, and later Old Testament books specifically more talked about the saving of the deliverance of the nation of the people of Israel. But in the New Testament, it means deliverance from sin and Satan, being saved from sin and Satan. It's an all-encompassing word to include all of the benefits of the cross and all of the works of grace, spiritual and physical, temporal and eternal, body, soul, mind, spirit, the whole package. And Jesus had to pay the ultimate price for us to be saved. Salvation is past, present, and future, is it not? We have been saved. We are being saved. We're being sanctified and set apart. And we will yet be saved. Paul talks about waiting for the redemption of our bodies waiting for that moment whenever we receive our new body, our resurrection body. And he said, you know, the whole world at the moment is creaking and groaning, waiting to see the sons of men coming into that glorious situation. You know, so the whole thing is past, present, and it's future in that sense that there's a continuation right into the glory. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So great. Often Paul, when he was preaching, you can see it in his writings, where he almost runs out of adjectives to describe the goodness of God, the glory of God, the salvation of the Lord. It's just almost beyond description. What a price what a cost. So when Jesus used these words, he didn't use them lightly because he knew this is going to cost me everything I have to provide this for you and for me. And then finally, the third word. Third word is forgiveness. Matthew 6. as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And we stop there. But we should read on. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When it came to talking about forgiveness, when Jesus spoke to us about forgiveness and what we should do about it, how we should forgive, he did that on the basis that he knew what it was going to cost to forgive us. And in the light of what it cost him to forgive us, it would be very little really for us to forgive someone else. What's it going to cost us? Our pride. But he didn't have any pride. But he had to forgive. And he knew to forgive, it wouldn't just be say, I forgive you. He had to pay the price to be able to say, I forgive you. My blood will cleanse you. In Mark chapter 11... Verse 12, now the next day when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if it perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you forever again. And his disciples heard it. Then he went into Jerusalem. He cast the money changers out of the temple, called them a den of thieves and so forth. And then verse 20, And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed, be cast into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says." Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And we stop there. Because that's exciting. That's challenging, isn't it? I read about one preacher when he read that, he got excited and he says, boy, Lord, do you really mean that I could literally move a mountain? Well, you must mean that you said that. But I'm not sure if I could do that. So I'll tell you what, I'll start with a paper clip. I'll see if I can move that paper clip. <laughs> he says, I never did move it. <laughs> no matter how much I thought about it, it didn't move an inch. <laughs> but note this. What does he say right after that? And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive... Neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. That's fairly strong, isn't it? 
In Matthew 18. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear that, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth as touching anything that they ask, be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. So he's obviously talking about forgiveness and a procedure. So then, in the heaves of that, he gives a parable. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with the servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a massive, massive amount of money beyond our imagination. But he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. For that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a piffling amount. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Same words, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw himself into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that had been done, they were very grieved. They came and told the master all that had been done. And his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you from his heart, if from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That's pretty brittle, isn't it? There's no gray areas there, is there? Why do you think Jesus was so strong on forgiveness? Because he knew the price he would have to pay to forgive us he would have to come to this earth he'd have to die that horrific death he'd have to shed his blood he'd have to be put in a tomb he'd have to be lied about spat upon rejected by men all of that to simply to be able to forgive us our sins no wonder he demanded forgiveness from us
Brother Yun, who was the, the Chinese pastor, as many of them were, in prison several times for his faith in China, uh, was beaten up umpteen times. One time he was so badly beaten, whenever his mother came to see him, she didn't even recognize it was her son. His legs were smashed. They put needles underneath his nails. They did everything possible to break his spirit. And he says at the start, he was so angry, he was so bitter, he was so unforgiving, he hated them. My guess is we would probably be the same. But he says he began to realize that this was doing him no good. And the only thing that would get him through was to forgive his captors, no matter how cruel they were. And with the grace of God, he was able to do it. He says, they never came to me seeking forgiveness, but I forgave them anyway. And here's what he said, it takes two to bring about reconciliation, but it only takes one to forgive. Two to bring about reconciliation, but only one to forgive. And he says, I was the one that decided, I'll forgive. I'll do this. Archibald Hart said, forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. Isn't that a powerful statement? Forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. Most of us at any rate who were saved a little later than life, in life, most of us have been Christ rejectors. We had no time for Christ. Some perhaps even used his name in blasphemy. And yet, he forgave us. He paved the way. He made that. Say, well, we had to come and ask for forgiveness. That's true. But whenever he was being nailed to the cross, those Roman soldiers didn't say, please forgive me for doing this. But nevertheless, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. What a cost, what a price Jesus had to pay to forgive us. Therefore, he expects us, hard as it may be, difficult to do as it often is, he expects us to forgive. And the grace of God can help us to do that. Because oftentimes that's not something that comes easily or naturally, is it? To be fair and to be honest. Only the grace of God. Let me close with a little story of Corrie ten Boom. Told you before, do you remember? Who was family, Dutch family, who were saving the Jews, the Nazis from the Nazis, was caught, all sent to concentration camps. Her mom and dad, her sisters, they all died. She got spared in the end. And she says she was a believer. And she says how that she would go around churches. She came a bit of a celebrity in the end, going around churches and telling her story. And she preached forgiveness. She said, I've forgiven them. People clap, wonderful. 
But then she says, one night in a church in America, she says, I just had finished speaking, and up walked the middle aisle was one of those Nazi prison guards. And she says, I instantly recognized him. Instantly knew who it was. And she says, he came right up to me, just the service had just been finished. He came right up to me, and he held out his hand, and he says, Fräulein Ten Boom, he says, you probably don't remember me. He says, I do. He says, I'm saved. Christ has forgiven me. Can you forgive me? And he put his hand out. And she says, I couldn't. She says, I put my hand behind my back. And she says, I was angry. And that moment I was angry. But he kept his hand out. He says, can you forgive me? He says, Lord, please help me. I can't do this. Help me. I'm preaching about it, but I can't do it. And she says, just by that, she says, the Holy Spirit filled my heart. And she says, in that instant, she says, all the anger and bitterness and unforgiveness that she thought I'd dealt with, but it was still there, she says, it just went. And I reached out my hand, and I shook his hand, and I forgave him. She says, the Holy Spirit, she had a brought on her hearts. The love of God, she had a brought on her hearts by the Holy Spirit. Help me to forgive that evil man, but had since got saved. Jesus prayed the ultimate price for redemption, for salvation, for forgiveness. And we have been the benefactors. We have been the recipients of all of that tonight. Aren't you glad? What a savior. What a gospel. What a message that we have got to a world out there that are lost, that need to be found that need to be saved and redeemed and forgiven. And we have got the message to do that. And there's power in that message, isn't there? Would you stand just quietly with me for a moment? Lord Jesus, we can hardly even begin to understand the cost that we spoke of tonight. It's beyond our imagination. But we know that you did it for us. You gave your life for our lives. And so we stand in this house tonight humble, glad, thankful for every mercy. We did not deserve it, but your grace gave it anyway. So we thank you for that tonight. And Lord, those whom we work with and live beside and perhaps family members, Lord, they don't understand this, but they need to receive it. Would you help us to be the conduit, the channel that will reach out and touch their lives, that will minister grace to the hearer and bring a word, Lord, of salvation. What a joy it is, Lord, when a sinner 
receives Christ. He says that there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that receives. So we bless you tonight and we give you thanks for who you are and for all that you have done for us. And Lord, bless Rachel in Madagascar. We thank you for everything she's doing. I thank you, Lord, for her time there, that you planted her there, you placed her there at this point in her life for a purpose. We pray your protection to be around her at all times. Thank you, Lord, you have already spared her life in the accident. Lord, we pray that your angels will stand guard over her and Louise and all those others, Lord, that we do not know, but are equally serving in your kingdom. So bless her. May she have a good night's sleep and may she wake up tomorrow, Lord, just to be ready and able to do the job that you've called her to do in the name of Jesus and all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.